You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Chubas of and although the starting point seems to be unusual today, we are steeped totally and completely in the words of the great Paiske Alocha as they are found in Shulchan Aruch. And there's really no better person, I think, to give this year than someone who has sort of perfected the ability to bring out from these, let's put it, I guess, what would you call them? Fairy tales or, or stories, fables, um, fables that go back hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, and to bring out these things that are so much part of our consciousness, uh, whether you've been raised in Europe or in the United States, You've heard versions of the story, um, and Rav Gershon Eliezer Shaffel, the Dayan of the Business of Loch Institute, uh, Dayan from the Chicago Chayshin Mishpat Kail, and the Rav of the Young Israel of Skokie, has sort of made a, a, I wouldn't say a career, but he's definitely blazed a path in this. A number of wonderful shirim that you can find online about these uh, stories that, hey, let's look at it with halachic eyes and being able to mind them for great nuggets of das. It's uh, made mention to, it's something that I've been doing in shul for about, uh, I think I have 10 stories uh, at least of the fairy tales, which we have analyzed from a halachic perspective uh, throughout the year. It's one of the more popular uh, shiurim, which, uh, which I give, Shuas night. So uh, Shuas night, I don't get to record it. So it's especially uh, uh, special to be able to give it in a time where it can be recorded and that way it can be shared with people who can't make it to Young Israel of Skokie on the Shuas night. It's too far of a walk from the, from the East Coast. Well, but, uh, you know, so lived in a certain, vi- vi- certain village, a little country girl, the prettiest creature who was ever seen. Her mother was excessively fond of her and her grandmother doted on her still more. The good woman had a little red riding hood made for her. It suited her, the girl so extremely well that everybody called her Little Red Riding Hood. So the first topic that I have over here is the notion of being described as such a pretty little girl. And this is something which is actually, it's not foreign. We may think that it's a foreign concept for Chazal to go ahead and be focused on a person's uh, beauty. But the uh, the first source that you have over here is there's a Gemara in Sota in Yudam and Aleph, where it says, Tarabana, Hamisha Nivru main dugma shamala, that there are five people who had, had traits about them, physical traits about them, which not only set them apart, but actually resembled what we would imagine God would look like in the event that he possessed those traits. But what's interesting is, and this is something which ends up not being so much a part of the story, although it certainly could have been, but the Gemara says, those things which defined them, which were most godlike about them, that ended up being their downfall. They all ended up tripping or failing in that area. Shimshon Bekocho, Shimon as far as his strength, Shaw Betzavaro, Shaw as far as his neck, meaning his stature, the way he, he, he comported himself, of Shalom Besar, of Shalom with his hair, Tzidkia Be'enav, Tzidkia has something special about his eyes, Asa Beraglov, and Asa with regards to his feet. So having a trait which sets you above uh, everybody else, although in many ways it may be considered to be a myla, but it's a myla like with everything else. Any bracha that a person has, they have to attend to it properly because if they abuse it or if they misuse it, that, 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 that dominant trait which they have can end up being their downfall. 
And more specifically, with regards to beauty, the Gemara Megillah says, So Chazal focuses very specifically on beauty. And they say that there are four outstandingly beautiful women that existed over the course of history, Sarah, Rachav, Abigail, Esther. So those are the four which Chazal uh, identify. And then the Gemara says, we are in the Gemara Megillah there, According to the opinion, it says that Esther had a green complexion, which is not particularly appealing for most people, maybe Martians, yes, but for, for humans. So it's not something which is particularly appealing. So mapik Esther umayil vashti. So we take out Esther and we put Vashti in place. So Vashti may have been, she's the fifth, but with an asterisk next, next to her name, whether or not she qualifies as the foremost beautiful or she just barely missed the, uh, uh, missed the cut. And the other sources, Tosos right over there is trouble that why, why didn't, uh, Chazal consider Chava to be one of the most beautiful people who ever existed? You would imagine Akash Baruch's creation itself should certainly be beautiful. And the note of Yehuda quoted in the Daf al Daf, which is a wonderful set on Shas from the, uh, the one who put out the more recent volumes of the, uh, uh, the Pardis Yosef. So his work on, the, on Shas. So he quotes the note of Yehuda who asks just generally, why are Chazal telling this to us? What's the, what are Chazal trying to teach us by identifying these four most beautiful, uh, women? And the note of Yudah goes ahead and says, this is the nature of Chazal. This is the nature. One day her mother, having made some cakes, said to her, Go, my dear. So before we even finish the sentence, so right away we have issues of Kibbut Avein. So Little Red Riding Hood's mother is sending her on a task to go ahead and do something. Now the task over here, which she's being assigned to do, spoiler alert, is to go ahead and bring some cake to her mom. So the the grandmother who's sick will find out this is sick. So her daughter wants to send some food to her. And rather than delivering it herself, so she's sending her daughter, Little Red Riding, to go ahead and do so. So the mother is doing kibbutz avein because one of the one of the mitzvahs of kibbutz avein, one of the expressions or applications of kibbutz avein, is machila o mashkeil. That's what, that's what it says in Shulchan Aruch, Reish Mem Siv Dalad, that one of the obligations of kibbutz avein is to go ahead and provide food for the parent. Now, what's interesting about that is is that we hold that although it's an obligation of the child to be michael o their parent to provide food and beverage, the child uh, in Sif Hay, Shulchan Aruch says that the mitzvah of Kibbut Avim is Mishal Av, not Mishal Ben. Really, the one who pays for the food is going to be the parent pays for the food, not the child. So here, the daughter, Little Red Riding Hood's mother, is going above and beyond her obligation because she's actually making the food. She's spending her own money to send her mother food, but that's part of the uh, part of the mitzvah. Now, an interesting thing about this is is that what happens in the event the parent doesn't have the means to make their to, to pay for their own food? Parent is out of money, and the child has money. So at that point, Shulchan Aruch says that we would actually kofinoso v'zon aviv kefimashu yachol. So we would actually force the child to go ahead and support the parent based on the uh, the, the the child's mean means, assuming that they have the ability to do so. Now, the end of this sif is something which is do begufo. So even in a circumstance where, let's say, the son also doesn't have money, or the son has already spent enough money paying for the parent's food, whatever the amount that would be. So even in circumstances where the child does not have to pay, nonetheless, the child has to put in the time, he has to be mechabit his parents with his body, and he has to serve. He doesn't have to buy the food, but he has to serve his parents the food. 
even if that means that the child isn't going to be able to work that day. He was planning on going to work, being at the office at nine, and the parent calls at 8.30 and says, I need you to go ahead and make me some breakfast. So the child has to call up, uh, has to say, okay, I won't be able to go to work. I'm not going to be able to do the, the house painting, which I was planning on doing today. What am I supposed to do? And this means that even if by not working, the child is going to have to go door to door asking for money to buy his own food. So Kibbut Avain requires him to give up his own time in his own job in order to go ahead and make sure to do the mitzvah of Kibbut Avain to spend the time serving food to his parents. But when is it true that the child has to give up work in order to give the time to his parent? That's only in the event that there's food in the cupboard today, so the child has food to be able to eat today. So as long as he'll be able to eat today, and he's just worried about tomorrow and the next day and the next day, so then the mitzvah of Kibbut Avim is going to trump that and say, no, go spend the time feeding your parents, even though it means you're not going to earn money today to provide you for food tomorrow and the next day. Avali Lesley. But in the event the child doesn't have his cupboard is bare, to go to a different story. So in the event that his cupboard is bare and he doesn't even have any food today, then then the child is not obligated to go ahead and skip work and beg for today's food. If it's a matter of my the child's food today versus spending the time uh, with the parent feeding them, then the child has the right to prioritize himself and he could go to work in order to make money so that he'll be able to buy his own food today, even though that's going to come at the expense of spending time with his father or mother and feeding them. Now there is, now this seems like a, a very dramatic, it is a dramatic finish, but it seems like an even bigger and more dramatic finish when we think about the way most people live in the 20th century and the 21st uh, century, because it would be very difficult for any employee to call his boss every day and say, so sorry, I can't make it into work this morning because I have to feed my parents. I can't make it into work this afternoon because I have to give them lunch. And going ahead and missing out work day after day. So it's not just a matter of that, uh, that the, the amount of time that you're going to miss and the, the wages you're going to miss out. At a certain point, your employer is going to fire you. And then you have no job and then you have nothing. So what do you do when it's one thing to be self-employed and you go ahead and you skip out on, on jobs and you decide, OK, I won't sell shmatas today and I'll go ahead and I'll take care of my parents and I'll just miss out on that job. It's no consequence other than to me and my family, other than to me. But when I have an employer, so that's a t- that's a different story. And here, the Rishon Litzion, in his commentary to Shulchan Aruch, he actually says that uh, he says, Venera, it seems. The requirement to give up work, uh, provided that you have food for today, even though you don't have any food for tomorrow, here's the Chiddush of the Rishon Litzion, it's only in the event that you're going to miss out on your own work. But to go ahead, to, to take the food in your cupboard, to give it to your parent. So you don't have to start giving away your own food if you don't have uh, 30 days worth of food. And then he says, and here's the, 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 the bigger part of the Chiddush. When do we say that you're going to give up work, give up your time and work in order to provide for your parents? That assumes that you have regular employment. You have a regular 
means by which you're going to be able to earn a living. Where, whatever day you work, you'll have the ability to go and hurt or earn money that day. So provided that if I skip today, I'll still have a job and I'll have a, a, a method of being able to earn money tomorrow. Then Allah says, give up working today in order to take care of your parents. But if that's not the case, Sometimes you may have a job, but other times it's a seasonal job. And if I don't work in this during season, so then I'll have nothing to do. Even if you have food today, but skipping today means I'm not going to, I miss out on the selling season. I miss out on the farmer's market day. There's only one day a week that the farmer's market is. And if I don't sell today, farmer's market, I, I, there is nobody who's going to buy my stuff tomorrow. Then and the opportunity presents itself to go ahead and work today to earn a large chunk of money. So so then when I'm working for somebody else or something is seasonal and I need to do it when the opportunity presents itself, then I don't have to give up my time until I have 30 days worth of food or let's say enough money in the bank to be able to buy food for 30 days, to be able to provide for myself for the next 30 days. But in the event that skipping work today means that I'm going to lose out on this opportunity to earn my monthly income or I'll lose my job altogether. So that already, the Rishon Litzion says, then the, the halach of Shulchan Aruch, that you have to not work in order to be able to uh, to spend that time with your parents so that you would not have to uh, you would not have to do. Okay. Yeah, well, that's the, the, the basic instruction that we don't do mitzvahs to impoverish ourselves, right? The same, because if, if the aside of not having food for 30 days means you're an oni. In other words, right. you don't have to become an oni through the asiyas mitzvah of kibadav. If right. you have food for 30 days, so you don't have the schus to take from the communal chest, so you're not an oni yet, right? But, right. 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 So the that's 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 the yisoid. We have by all mitzvahs. You're mavazvis, but you're not mavazvis to the point that you become an ani through that. I think that's right. Good. So take this cake. See how your grandmother is doing. For here, she has been very ill. Take her a cake and a little pot of butter. Not necessarily the healthiest food to send to somebody who's ill, but this is going back a, a time. So that's what she did. So now there's a lot of uh, uh, you know discussion chazal about the mitzvah of bicker cholim. So the Gemara in Sota tells us very clearly that this, this is Reb Chama, Reb Chanina says, what does the Pasuk mean when it says, that you have to follow after God? It means, how is it possible to follow the Shekhinah? The Pasuk says, God is a consuming fire and you can't get too close. So what does it mean? Obviously, it's not meant literally to follow God. What it means is you're going to follow Hashem's behavior. Just like HaKadosh Baruch Hu provides clothing for the naked, like we find at the beginning of the Torah, so too you should also go ahead and provide clothing for those in need. HaKadosh Baruch Hu Bikr Cholim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu does the mitzvah Bikr Cholim when he visited Avram Avinu. So you also should do the same, and then the Chazal cite other examples. So now, also from the, the Daf al-Daf, so he quotes from a sefer called Mirafs. He, he wonders, how could the Rambam, the famous Rambam in, uh, in Hilchos Avel, where he goes out and says that the mitzvahs of like Bikr Cholim and whatnot are Midrabanan, where it's a mitzvah sase shall divrehim. 
levaker cholim lenachem avayim lehotzi ames lehachnis kala, where he says it's a it's a drabanan. How could the Rambam say that it's a drabanan? Velo mitzvos elu nilmados minakasuv acharei shemel kechem teleichu. The Gemara says in 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 Sota seemingly very explicitly that the mitzvah biker cholim is a daraisa. That's part of 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 following Hashem's ways. And so he writes. One element of Bikr Cholim is the visitor creates a bond or a connection with the, the person who is ill, the person who is sick. You have to be empathic and you have to feel that person's tsar. And you want you become inspired to want to daven on their behalf to bring healing towards them. That's one element, one component, one facet of the Mitzvah Bikr Cholim. And then Hasheni, the second element is, And this is a much more, I wouldn't say mundane, but a much more practical element of the Mitzvah. And that is, when a person is sick, they don't do laundry, they don't wash dishes, they don't go shopping. There's lots of technical things which happen in in their home, which need to be addressed. And when a person is healthy, they can address them themselves. When a person is ill, these things are often overlooked and they're unattended to. So a major component of Bikr Cholim is just to take care of those practical things. So now, once we identify that there's two different components to connect with the chola so that you'll be inspired to daven for them, and then the second part is just looking around to see what's needed. So he says, So we can now explain that the Ramam is talking about one element of the mitzvah, and Chazal, we're talking about another element. So he says, We could say, one of the models that we have of the mitzvah of Bikr Cholim, which the Gemara and Sota identified, was the fact that Kash Baruch Hu visited Avram Avinu. Yeshbo Rak Esadin Harishon. So that only has the first element of it. Where Kash Baruch Hu reveals himself to Avram Avinu, and he joins him in his pain. He says, I know how painful this is, and I'm with you. So when Akash Baruch Hu is the one who connects with the Chola, that itself provides the healing. So this is, it's, it's a fascinating, like, philosophical thing he says over here. But he says the second component of the Mitzvah Bikr Cholim, which is to go ahead and see what's not being attended to, whether the laundry is being taken care of, and is the house being cleaned, and is somebody doing the shopping. Uh, doesn't need to do that. It's not really possible for him to do that. Because he occupies, he knows exactly what's going on in the home. He knows where the pile of laundry is. He knows the last time they washed the floors. And he knows that nobody's been shopping for a week and a half. And he knows what what Avram Avinu would need in his home. And he doesn't need to go ahead and do that visit. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in a sense, could only do the first part of the mitzvah. Connect with the chola to bring healing towards them. And therefore he says, that's what the uh, Chazal were referring to, the mitzvah, which is which would have a daraisa component to it. That is the connection to the chola, to go ahead and provide him with the healing. But the other part of it, which is the more practical element of it, looking around and seeing what's there, that's what the Rambam was referring to, and that is only a Durabanan, and that's how he reconciles those, uh, those two sources. Okay, now, 
there is, once we're on the topic of, uh, of Bikr Cholim, so there's a fascinating discussion which Tzitz Eliezer brings down. This is, here the source is Chelek Tessim in Yud Zion, a whole country he has on the, on the Rufu on Shabbos. But he has a whole discussion about whether or not there's an obligation to do, whether there's a mitzvah to do Bikr Cholim in the event that the patient has some communicable disease has some contagious uh, condition. This would have been much more relevant than COVID, let's say. And then he goes ahead and he expands it. And he says that you could ask the question even more, is a doctor allowed to treat a patient who has a contagious disease where there's a, the, it puts the doctor at risk? Maybe the, even the doctor doesn't have, shouldn't, be, uh, shouldn't be attending to that person because he's allowed to put himself at risk. And he quotes a very famous chuva of the Radvaz, where the Radvaz says that putting yourself in danger to save somebody else, so it's something which is not to be done, even refers to as a chassid shota, to go ahead and put yourself in danger to save somebody else. So it seems to be based on the Radvaz, you would not do bicker cholim in a circumstance where the person has a contagious disease and you could get sick. And maybe even the doctor would not be allowed to treat because the doctor is not allowed to be a chassid shota either. Then he goes ahead and he quotes the Chuvas Ramah. The Tshuva of the Ramah is really coming from a Chosha Mishpat perspective. Here's our Chosha Mishpat. The Chosha Mishpat perspective is, is that you have a masker and a socher. The masker agrees to go ahead and lease out an apartment. That's a, it's a two flat. So the masker lives on the bottom floor. The socher, the, the tenant is going to live on the upper floor. They sign a contract. They sign a lease and they're all ready to go. And then on move-in day, the socher says, I'm sorry, we're not going to be moving in today. Just wanted to let you know. Uh, we'll be moving in probably tomorrow. My wife is at the doctor. They think she has some contagious condition. The masker says, whoa, 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 whoa. I agreed to rent you this apartment. We signed a lease and all that, but not if she has some sort of contagious condition. I don't want somebody with a contagious condition moving into my home. No way, no how. I'm canceling the lease. And they came to the Ramah for a Din Torah. Does the masker have the right to cancel the lease in the event that the, uh, the tenant who's about to move in has a contagious disease or not? In the Ramas, amazing thing he writes, but he says, He says, that which the masker is claiming, I can't let you move into my apartment. You have a contagious disease. We're all going to get sick and we could all die. Chas Shalom. Says the Ramah, it's amazing. He says, He says, it's meaningless. And only a person who doesn't really have somebody's heart bothers them and has, is, is, suffers from anxiety. Only such a person would be concerned about that. Why? They have, a, they have a contagious disease. What do you mean? Says Ramah, Ki Hashem Yis'ala Hu HaMochetz Because the Kodesh Baruch is the one who decides who gets sick and who gets healed. Vim HaMaskir. And in the event that we have to follow the Maskir's opinion, that because the person has a contagious disease, I could undo the, I could, uh, I could uh, renege on the lease, and it's not binding because it's so dangerous. Says the Ramah, the Ramah argues this exact point, so the whole mitzvah of Bikr Cholim is now out the window. We don't find in Chazal and in the postgame anybody drawing a distinction when it comes to their presentation of the mitzvah of Bikr Cholim that there should be any sort of distinction between somebody who's a Cholim with a contagious disease or not. Nobody makes that distinction. There's one condition which Chazal go ahead and say, where they say you're not allowed to sit even in his shadow because you may uh, it's, it's contagious enough that you may get it. But in general, 
poskim say, we have bitachon. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to decide who's sick and who's not and say, oh, the person has a contagious disease and therefore I want to back out of my, uh, my lease agreement. So the Ramah is having nothing about that whatsoever. Ah, what about the Radvaz? So the, so the, uh, the Tzitzel Yezer explains, and he says, when the Radvaz says that putting yourself in danger to save somebody else, you're a chassid shota, that is, it's a very specific thing that the Radvaz was talking about. I don't know how to pronounce the word exactly, but he says where you have a tangible danger which, uh, which the person is facing, like they say to you, let us cut off your limb in order to save your friend. So cutting off a limb, that's, that's a real thing which is taking place, losing a limb. So there's a huge risk for infection and people die from that all the time. Losing a limb, you could, you could uh, put the entire body in, in, in danger. Or to put yourself in danger by going into a war zone or diving into a, a river or an ocean to save somebody. So you're putting yourself into tangible danger that the Radvaz says to put yourself in real danger, real tangible physical danger in order to save somebody else. So that's when we say that you're a chassid shota. Okay, so he says that that is something which is going to be very dangerous because who knows whether or not you're going to have the necessary to be able to uh, emerge healthy and intact when you go ahead and uh, you, uh, you put yourself in that tangible danger and you need and the only way to survive that is because Baruch is going to have, have to have an abundance of compassion towards you in order for you to emerge. So when there's a tangible danger that you face, that's when we say, no way, no how, you don't put yourself in danger to try and put yourself in suffix in order to save somebody else. It seems, it, seems that, it seems that what he's also emphasizing is that it's one thing if you're talking about a disease that's carried in the air uh, through bacteria or et cetera. Uh, and there's another thing if you're talking about that the nexus of the danger is a living being that wants to kill you. And therefore, as he says, <laughs> for a Kaddish Baruch Hu to somehow take the teeth out of that wolf or to somehow, you know, make the guy's uh, you know, slashing scimitar uh, land in a different spot, that's already something that you can't necessarily depend on and say, God will take care of me. Because the Bali Bechira or the Balchai, which is Be'etzim, right? So that's, it's sort of, again, I think probably a, uh, a, uh, uh, what is that called? The, the infectious diseases doctors. They might disagree with this chiluk between the the bacteria that wants to live and infect you, right, and wants to get you no matter what, because you're another host for it to continue living. But that seems to what that seems to be what he's saying here. That said, so he has right, but he's also talking about a river, so that's not uh, Balchai. When he talks about Omamamke Amayim. Yeah, yeah, because we know a river basically smashes people to go in, right, Benny? So, but uh, the Bali Bechir Biyad Chai. So the next line, Mash Enken, Kisha Safik Sakan, he beglal Siba Mufshetes Veina Muchashit. He says, when the potential danger is not something which is tangible, you can't see it, and it's not something that you could touch necessarily. So, Bazer, Yeshomer, the Safik Zet, Lomikri Kisafik Sakan Amamish. 
So Tzitz Eliezer says that that's what the Ramah is talking about. And it may be that halachically, again, right, the infectious disease doctors would certainly disagree with this, but he says that Tzitz Eliezer is saying that may not even be something which is called a suffix sakana mamish. And therefore, you'd be allowed, not only as a doctor, but even as a mevaker chola, to go visit somebody where the potential danger is not something which is tangible. That's why the Ramah says, Baruch is the one who decides who gets sick. It sees that there could potentially be a difference in that. And this is obviously significant because she's going to be, Little Red Riding Hood is going to be going through the forest where there are dangerous creatures which are there. So even to do the mitzvah of Bikr Cholim, is she allowed to, is there a mitzvah to do Bikr Cholim where she has to put herself in Sakana to go through the forest to get to grandma's house? So she has a good shayla on her hand. She's got to call a base hora of sorts to find out whether this is a, whether this is mutter or not. Okay. Now, skip some of the other uh, sources. Literate Riding Hood set out immediately to go to her grandmother who lived in another village. Okay. So we have sources over here about honoring grandparents. A lot of interesting uh, things about whether yes or whether no. There's a story in Chazal, famous story at the end of Sota, about a grandfather who raised his grandson. And then when the grandfather said, could you go ahead, Ashkai in Maya, could you go ahead and get me some water? Amrlo and the grandson responded, Lav brich ana. I'm not your son. I'm not your son. Why should I go ahead and do that? And then he says, so that's uh, that's uh, what exactly he meant, whether that's a raya, that there is no kibbutz avaim to it to a grandparent or not. So that's something which the uh, the post game uh, discuss. Right. Now, so, so, the, so the question would be, uh, which one of the aspects that you skipped there is that um, is is little red being makayim kibbutz av or kibbutz aim by doing a paula that her mother wants. And that's, you know, question is, it doesn't really feed her mother or give any physical benefit to her mother. It helps her mother be Makayim her mitzvah. That would get right. into the question whether it, it might be a mitzvah kiyumis, but it might not be the mitzvah kiyumis of, of kibbutz klapi the mother. The only thing right. is... But, but she may have a mitzvah of kibbutz kibbud the grandmother, I understand. Right. Is it, right. But right. the kibbutz mother... L'chayr, it doesn't really, like like the, the Rashba that you had there with Rebbein Hananel, it doesn't really give direct Hanah to the, to the mom, even though, you know, she... right. So the Birke Yosef quotes explicitly from the Shrus Yaakov that there's an obligation to, to go ahead and to be Mechabed a grandmother as well. So there, there, it's, it's clear. So Red Riding Hood may have an, a direct obligation to her, uh, to her grandmother. And then she, that would be more, uh, 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 mitzvah, it could potentially be Chiyubis because she is providing her with food. So she's, uh, you know, doing that. Okay. As she was going through the woods, she met with a wolf who had a very good mind to eat her up, but he dared not because of some woodcutters working nearby in the forest. So here you have the sugya of putting yourself in danger for a mitzvah. So you have the Gemara Zimsachim, which talk about whether you are allowed to, you're not allowed to, and then potentially uh, the reason why you're not allowed to, even for the sake of a mitzvah, is because if a miracle has to occur in order to save you, so that's something which becomes very dangerous. Uh, the Gemara in Shabbos actually says more explicitly, there, person should never put themselves into a makam sakana, relying on the fact that a miracle will occur, because shema inosin you don't know whether the miracle is going to occur or not. So that's number one; it's dangerous. 
and v'im osin lones, and in the event that a miracle does happen, menakilom is so then you're going to lose because the money which you have in your spiritual bank account, so there a withdrawal is going to be made in order to uh, to get you out of that uh, circumstance. And that's something which uh, a person does not want to subject themselves to. And that's what Yaakov Avinu said, Katoti Mikola Chasidim Mikola Emes, he was worried that he had run out of Schuyas, that his... Uh, what uh, but Hakadosh Baruch Hu having taken care of him up until that point, maybe he had used up all the schuyos, and then he's going to be in big trouble when uh, it, it, right. Okay, now Rav Yashiv says uh, on this idea that when you uh, if a miracle happens, it takes away your schuyos, and therefore you don't put yourself in danger. So he quotes from the Tzvua Shor. This is Rav Yashiv's Aros on Maseches Shabbos. He says the Tzvua Shor eas b'hadim what we say in halacha, that shochech alanisim beberkas amazon bechanukah. Somebody forgets to say alanisim in benching on Chanukah. Shein choser, you don't go back to the beginning of benching. It's not the mandated that you go back. But azay yomer besov berkas amazon. But what halacha says you do is harachamon hu yasa lanu nisim viniflos kamol shas lavoseinu. We say the compassionate one should provide us, should do for us miracles and wonders like he did for ancestors. So v'tzarchiyun. So that is something which is surprising. The Gemara Dilon Mavur, our Gemara makes it clear, that in the event that, that Shemaim does a miracle for a person, so that is going to take away from one's chuyos. So why would we daven that Kashbrach should forgive us a nace, if ultimately that's going to be to our detriment, and that's why we don't put ourselves in, in Sakan in the first place anyways, because even if, even if a nace occurs, it's something which is going to be bad. So the simple answer he gives is, shiny ben it may be that there's a difference when you're davening on behalf of the tzibur. So for the sake of a tzibur, the tzibur has so much tzchus that we're not afraid that it's going to detract from uh, the, the power which they have. Same reason why davening with tzibur is so much more powerful because uh, the, the power of the tzibur is something which is so much greater. So as a tzibur, you could go ahead and you can expect nisim, you could actually ask for them. And the Gemara, which says that you should not put yourself in danger because even if a nisim occurs, it's going to be menakilom that's talking about you as an individual, that's something which one should not do. Okay. Now, Rabbi Shafi seems to stress yeah. a little bit, of the nature is a little bit different, I think, is that it's not that there's so much tzchuyos that it's it, you can't be menakeit. It's that whenever a nest happens to its seabor, it becomes a kiddush Yisbarach. It becomes look how much God loves Klal Yisrael. Look how much and people in the veld will say, oh, you see, there's a God who cares for humanity, who cares for the world. Somehow, if it's your own individual nest, it just becomes a story that you write up in Reader's Digest. But if it becomes the story of the of the seabor, then it adds it adds chuyos, right? We become the, the the nation. That's what he says here, right? The aim yeah, is if, if if you if you look the 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 uh, whoever the uh, the magia is, he says v'yesh ladas v'yesh lavar v'yesh whatever. Imayachi yefarsim nesha shenasa lo b'makom haroi ukeshemevi toda. Nah, nah, he's he's wrong. Time something happens to Klal Yisrael. Now, how many people does it mean to take Klal Yisrael at Sibor? It, it generates, oh, God loves these people. The Rabbeinu Shalom shame is miyuchet in the veil. Anyway, fight them. Then there's the issue of saying Tfilah Saderach. So in Tfilah Saderach, we'll just speak out, outside that Tfilah Saderach is something which you do even when you're on your way to a Dvar Mitzvah. 
even though Shluchim Mitzvah in a Nizakin, but nonetheless, the post can speak out that you would say, uh, you would say Tfilah Saderach anyways, even if you're going for the sake of uh, Pikrach Nefesh, you would go ahead and you would, uh, you would do it. And then the other thing is that even if a person's on their way, it's, it, it, it makes sense right, uh, after you think about it, but even if a person has to travel on Shabbos, where you're not supposed to be traveling on Shabbos, you get in the car on Shabbos because you need to go somewhere for Pikuach Nefesh. So in that case as well, you would say, uh, uh, you would say, uh, you would say Tfilah Saderach, and it's not considered to be a violation of Bakasha Srach of Bishabbos. Because this is this is what's considered to be one of the ways that we get out of the uh, the restriction against asking for personal things on Shabbos is if that's the normal toface of the bracha, that's the regular nusach of the bracha. So that is one way that we circumvent it. And the, the quote from the Tshuva's B'Tzal Chachma, that's how we reconcile that. Uh, he eats up the, uh, the, the grandmother, fixes up the house, and then he puts on her nightgown and her nightcap and climbs into bed. And she comes knocking on the door, and he says in his the best woman's voice that he could come up with, who's there? Your grandchild, Little Red Riding Hood, replied the wolf, counterfeiting her voice, who has brought you a cake and a little pot of butter sent, sent you by his mother. So this now in, brings up a very uh, interesting halachic thing, which is what's called tvias ayin dekala, identifying a person by their voice. And the sugi begins with this gabar in Gita, not too long ago for Dafyomi people. The Mishnah says, Hakok Sherin everybody could deliver a get, certain exceptions. are usually exceptions to everything. Suma, a person who's blind and a non Jew. Okay, so the Gemara says, The fact that the Cheres Shotevikatan can't do it, they don't have Das, and without Das, you can't be a Shliach. The fact that a Goy isn't allowed to be a Shliach, because he has no Shaykhs to get in the Kedushin and cannot serve as a Shliach for something there's no Shaykhs to. But But what's the problem with the blind person? Why are we discriminating against a blind person being able to go ahead and deliver a get? What's the problem? Being they can't visually identify who is giving him the get and who he's handing the get to, so lacking that visual recognition. So how does how do we know that he's actually taking it from the right person? He's giving it to the right person. You could do a lot of fraud if the person does not see who's giving it to him and who he's handing it to. Maski for Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef says, Rav Sheshesh, how can you possibly mean that? How is a blind person ever allowed to be intimate with his wife? If he can't visually identify her, so then how does he know who she is? Maybe it's somebody else. And and in general, how is any husband and wife allowed to be together at night when it's dark and all of the lights are out in the room? How do you know who's the other person in bed? How, how do you know? You can't If you can't visualize, Ela betvias ena dekala, Rather, they know because they recognize the voice of the other person. So tvias eina dekala is something which is considered to be a simon muvak. It's a way to positively identify a person and that alleviates all our concerns that maybe this is another woman, maybe this is another man. So by the same reason, the shliach should be able to deliver a get to a woman because he knows who gave him the get because they'll say, I want to hear your voice before you hand me the get. And then before he hands it to the woman, they'll say, I want to hear your voice before I go ahead and I deliver the get to you. And what's the problem? This is a, this is a real halachic uh, allowance. This is a real halachic principle of tvias ena dekala. 
Okay. By the way, Rabbi Shaflis, just for yes. our listeners' edification, both of these Amaroyim were blind. Yes, yes, oh. yes, yes. So it's yes, it's, right. it's 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 that Rabbi Shaflis and Rabbi Yisrael, the two two blind men, were were discussing the chashivas of 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 the sensory perceptions of people who didn't have their sight. Go ahead. Right. Right. So now here again the daf al daf over here in Gittin. So he brings down from the Panim Yafos. And he asks, the Shaila is great. I think the Shaila is great. And then the answers are, are even greater. So he says, Yosef If we have this principle of Tvias Eina Dekala, that you could recognize a person's voice, how is Yosef able to disguise himself from his brothers as soon as he talks? So they hear right away, oh, that's my brother Yosef. I've heard that voice. I heard that voice for 17 years. So the Panim Yafa says, you know why they didn't recognize him? Because Yosef never spoke to them. Until he said, all the communication between Yosef and the brothers was through an interpreter. So they never had a chance to hear his voice because they for sure would have recognized his voice. And therefore, to pull this off, Yosef had to use an interpreter the whole time. So that they would not be able to know who he is, but wouldn't be able to identify him based on his voice. Then they say, the Imre Emes, Ger Rebbe, Tiritz, he says, also, it's a fascinating thing. He says, the Yeshomer, the Tvias, I and the Kol, Hainudavka, but also Lashon Shiragobo. You only recognize a person's voice in the language that you normally communicate with him. So Yosef and his brothers in their home, in Yaakov's home, they spoke Lashon Kodesh. So the brothers knew what Yosef's Lashon Kodesh voice sounded like. So had he spoke, spoke Lashon Kodesh, they for sure would have been able to identify him. But when he used his Mitzri voice, his Mitzri language, they had never heard him speak Mitzri before with the nuances and the language and the accents and all of that stuff. So they had no frame of reference to be able to recognize his Mitzri voice. And he actually could speak to them directly because they had never heard it. Then he says, don't think they were just, this is just a creative. And now you can understand the Pasuk, that when uh, Yosef finally identified himself to the brothers, it's my mouth speaking to you. What does that mean? Pirish Rashi. Rashi says, Balashan Kodesh. All of a sudden he's speaking Lashan Kodesh. Why, why, where's Rashi getting this from? What's going on in the story? So explains it, the Imraemes, Vahainu Sha'az, he kiru al tvias ayin dekala. It wasn't simply that he knew Hebrew, but the fact that once he started speaking Hebrew, they said, ah, that's Yosef's voice. That I recognize. Now that's a Simon Mubak that this is, that this is who he is. Okay. That's, uh, that's the way the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Panim Yafos and the, uh, the Imre Amras go ahead and bring that down. And then he says that they bring down from Avoyashiv that, um, on the same sugya, he says, Isa Besanhebra and Samach Zion, that the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Samazayin, says, Gabi Mesis, that if somebody is accused of being a Mesis, of getting out, encouraging other people to be idolaters, the Mizamnin Lam Adim. So in order to catch the guy in the air, so we prepare witnesses somewhere hidden away in a corner. The Adim B'makam Choshech, and the witnesses are there in the dark corner somewhere, sort of like a blank screen on Zoom, so you can't actually see them there, but they're, they're there hiding. The Mesis Makam Or, and the Mesis is in a place of light, and then you'll be able to see, they'll be able to hear what he what he says. Because of Shem Rashi, and Rashi says, the below Re'iyah Mamish Losagi, that it's not enough for them to hear 
the Masis say what it is that he says. They have to visually see him go ahead and make that statement. So the question is, obviously, why do they need to see him make that statement? If they recognize his voice, why shouldn't they be able to testify later on? We know that Plony is a Macy's because we heard him do it. Did you see him? I don't have to see him because I heard him and I recognize his voice. We went, to, we went to school together. We were in the yeshiva together. And I recognize that voice anywhere. And obviously, I know who that, who that is. And the Shulte Giborim says, has one opinion. That the Mikan Raya, that this Gemara and Sanhedrin, where for the Mesis you actually have to see him, that's a Raya, de lo samchinan betvias ayin de kala legabi edus. Although tvias ayin is a very important halachic principle, it's not the same thing as knowing something or seeing something which is necessary for edus. In order to be made against a person, you need re'ia mamish, in just hearing that person, and even though you recognize their voice, that's not going to be enough. It's only when it comes to matters of Isr Veheter. And Isr Veheter isn't a matter of kasher and treif. Isr Veheter means even to be able to be intimate with, intimate with one's wife, to be confident that that's who she is, even in, in, in Isr Veheter of Eishas Ish, Tviyas Ayin is sufficient. Eidus has a very unique halacha. Edus, it's not enough to know something. It's not enough to be able to recognize the voice, even though it's certainly reliable halachically. But there you need re'iyah mamish. And Tviyas Ayin doesn't rise quite to the level of re'iyah mamish. And therefore, the, the, the Shilta Gibran brings, at least according to one opinion, that Tviyas Ayin is not reliable for when actual Edus is necessary. Okay, then uh, she walks into the room and she gets very scared. She has, when she arrived, again, skipping a little part of the story, she found to her surprise that the door was open. She walked into the parlor, and everything looked so strange that she thought, oh my gosh, why am I so afraid? I usually like it at grandmother's. So her spidey sense went off. Her, uh, her amygdala was triggered over here, realizing that something was amiss, even though she wasn't able to put her finger on it. And this is reminiscent of the Gemara in Megillah, where Ravina says, Shmamina, Haiman de Mivas, that if a person feels scared, there's such a thing there, you don't see what it is. Now we're talking about Ri'i again. Interesting. But even though you don't see what it is that's making you nervous, your mazel is able to sense that there's something which is dangerous in the vicinity, and that's going to give you that fear of, oh, there's danger, and I have to look out for, uh, for what's going on. And then we say, uh, what's my takante? So what's the remedy to this? How are we going to be able to go ahead and address this? Likre kriyashma. So you say kriyashma. So if you can say kriyashma, so that will alleviate the, uh, the, uh, the, the fear. And then the Gemara goes on to talk about what happens if you're in a place where you cannot say kriyashma. Now here, which says that when your mazel sees something which is dangerous, so the, uh, the initial recourse, the initial remedy that you should pursue is the recitation of Shema, is reading Shema. So Rav Chaim Falaji says, the minag Yisrael, who, kishroim davar sakana, korin kriyashma. The minag in Klal Yisrael is that when you see something dangerous, you say kriyashma. Now, I think everybody's familiar with the idea that people say kriyashma as they're, as they think they're about to die. When they're about, when they're about to die, Kiddush Hashem, they go ahead and say Kriyashma. I'm not sure if that's the origin, that's the real minog is to say Kriyashma when you're about to die, although that's part of the vidui, Zolzain. But it could be that really what people are tapping into is that when you're in danger, 
then you say Shema. Now, many times danger means you're afraid you're going to die, so it could easily be confused. But here, Reb Chaim Falaji is saying very explicitly that the Minigan Klai Yisrael is when you see Davar Sakana, Korin Kriyashma. So the Kriyashma is to help you get out of the Sakana rather than saying Shema is the last words that you're going to recite as you're on this earth. I don't think that that's necessarily the, uh, the, the, the Minna. And then he goes ahead and explains a little bit as to why that is. I was just listening to a podcast today where they say that there's actual uh, scientific evidence that a person who strengthens their emunah and bitachon, I don't know how they say that necessarily scientifically in scientific literature, but a person who strengthens their emunah and bitachon, that actually is, they, they, they could quantify that that lowers one's anxiety and depression. So it's a measurable, it's a measurable thing. I don't know how they measure it, but it's a measurable uh, thing. But he says, and that's really what he quotes over here. He says from Hagon Rabbi Yitzchak David Alter Shlita. He says Vegam Bepshuto. He says without even needing to get into Rashi Tevos and Gematrias and anything like that. Yeshomer, we could explain very simply. Kemisha Mekabel Atzmo Malchus Somebody who, in a moment of danger, in a moment of anxiety, they accept upon themselves the yoke of heaven sincerely. Viodea, and they reinforce shahakoban hagas Hashem Yisbarach that everything ultimately comes from Hashem. Everything is in Hashem's hand. Veinod milvado, and there's nothing else other than Hakadosh Baruch Hu, and He's going to decide. Memela bato etzlo hapachad mimazikin ushar kishufim vitzaros. So the person is alleviated of the distress and alleviated of the fear which is associated with the circumstance in which they find themselves in because they have the comfort knowing that whatever's going to be this HaKadosh Baruch Hu is doing, he's the one who decides things and I can be comfortable. And now we went ahead and he devoured Little Red Riding Hood. So he's got this, uh, you know, enormous sized belly with uh, two people uh, inside over there. And this huntsman comes in and he took a pair of scissors and cut open his belly. And here, the uh, the topic here is whether there's pikuach nefesh on the deceased. Somebody coded, somebody, fl- uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, died uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the hospital and to go ahead and revive them. So to revive a person who's already coded. So is there some sort of mitzvah pikuach nefesh or not? And the beginning of this, as we know, is from the story of Eliyahu who went ahead and revived the child who died. Just a pashup shot. We're putting aside, you know, he didn't really die. He was faint. He was comatose, whatever it is. Assuming he actually died. So we know that Tosos famously asks, Tosos in Bab Metziah, Kufya Dawud, How could Eliyahu go ahead and revive the son of this widow? Kevin Shekohen Haya. He was a Kohen. And we know that a Kohen is not allowed to be Matami himself. If the child is dead, so there's an Isa for a Kohen to be in the room with him, let alone to be in direct contact with him. So says Tostros, the Yeshlomar, we could say, And this is the key phrase, that Eliyahu Anavi was certain that he'd be able to revive him. And therefore, since he was absolutely certain that he would be able to resuscitate him, it was muta because of pikuach nefesh. The mitzvah pikuach nefesh, even though the child was dead, the mitzvah pikuach nefesh overrides, but all the Mephorshim point out only because as if to say, if they're only going to try to revive him, and they're not certain that it's going to work, then it may be that it was be also the Isidaraisa to be Matame might be an impediment to do so. But being that it was Baraloshiyu, so that's why he was allowed to do so. And that's why Revol Yashav asked in the Khashuk Khemed in in uh, 
And Rav Zuberstein, they both quote from those who say that, listen, Pikuach Nefesh is even Suffolk Pikuach Nefesh. It's Docha Shabbos, it's Docha Yom HaKippurim. It should certainly be Docha, the Isidaraisa for Koin to be Metame. Why does Tosos go ahead and, and, and uh, require Barolo Shechayeyu? So Rav Yashir says, he quotes others, as saying that we, we differentiate between somebody who's Becheskas Chai and somebody Cheskas Meis. Somebody is becheskas chai, they're still hanging on, albeit with just by, by a thread, but they still have some life left. So then cheskas chai says, okay, now go ahead and uh, violate Shabbos, violate Yom Kippur, violate whatever you need to go ahead and save the person who is becheskas chai. But somebody is already dead, so then who knows, who says that there's a mitzvah pikuach nefesh? So it may very well be that there is no mitzvah over there and there would not be an override. The chashuk echemed, Rav Zuberstein, so he quotes, Rav Kibbalavitz, you're going to like this, he quotes at length from the Nitziv, in the Emek Sheila, in the Shiltus. So he has a long thing, also a Lamdesha thing, where um, he says that he points to two different sources for the fact that Pikuach Nefesh override Shabbos, depending on which source you, uh, you, 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 uh, you, you follow. So that could have impact. But he says that, uh, he writes, Ulefi he says, even if you're going to go ahead and try and resuscitate the deceased, where the mitzvah of a doesn't apply anymore because he's not chai, he's already dead. So the doesn't work. But if we could be certain that by violating halacha now, we will gain in the big picture other mitzvahs, Chalel Shabbos Achas, so that you should be able to be Mekayim, you should be able to be Shomer many other Shabbases. So then Omrim, so in such a case where we know that that will be the outcome, then we could apply the other rule, Chalel Shabbos Achas, Kadesh Yishma Shabbos Harbe. So go ahead and violate one Shabbos in order to, in order to earn many other Shabbos observances. V'lachain Hidgishu Hatosos, and therefore since we're not coming from the Chai Bahem, but we're coming from the Shamu V'nei Yisrael as Shabbos, so that's why Tosos has to emphasize, Shemuter Hoya Le'ediyahu Hanavi Litami Lameis, the only allowance for Le'ediyahu to become Tamei, Mishum Shehoya Bar Le'ediyahu Shayel Yechayeh V'yishmo Shabbosos Harbe, is only because there actually will be that gain of future Shabbosim. But if you don't know you're going to gain those future Shabbosim, who says you should sacrifice this Shabbos uh, 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 for the Tzad that maybe there'll be other Shabbosim? Maybe that's not a good equation. If they don't know for sure he's going to live, you're not allowed to do so. Because once V'chai Behem is off the table, the only thing is you can only sacrifice today's Shabbos if you know you're going to gain other Shabboses, but not on the Suffolk. And that's why he said, that's why the Nitziv says you could go ahead and uh, and do so. And then in the Daf al Daf, he brings out an interesting thing from the Marsham. And that is, um, uh, he, he wonders why um, that Eliyahu asked for the key to Trias HaMesim. Right? Many other people, he says, uh, and he says, Yeshul Haven, we need to understand, Lama Chem Shematzanu Nami Shehech Yumesim. There are other people who also revive the dead. And we don't find that they asked HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the key to Tchia Samesim. So why uh, Eliyahu Navi decides he's going to ask for that key at this time? So he says, because he differentiates, this is based on the Marsham, where he differentiates between a real medical uh, cure, a real uh, uh, medicinal approach, versus something which is schooly, something which is heebie-jeebie type of thing. So he says, to go ahead, to be Mechalo Shabbos, 
for a refuah sugulit to get a bracha from a Rebbe or something like that, you're not allowed to be Mechal Shabbos in order to get a bracha from a Rebbe, because that's not something which is tried and tested uh, refuah. But if you have something which is a definitive, it's been a tested medical approach, that you're allowed to go ahead and do. So Eliyahu Anabi, since he needed to be Mechalel, he needed to override Isidaraisa for him to come in contact with a corpse. He couldn't use a refuah Sigulli in order to do that, because that doesn't override Isurim. The only way he's able to override this is if you have a real tried and tested method of Tchiyas HaMesim, and the Maftech for Tchiyas HaMesim, that's not considered to be a refuah Sigullit, that's considered to be a real refuah. So everybody else, they weren't running into the problem of kuhuna, so they could go ahead and they could do it in a schooly fashion, but Eliyahu Anavi was not able to do that. Okay, and run off into the woods by myself if mother tells me not to. So here she was taking a nether of sorts, potentially taking a nether of sorts, and whether or not taking a, although Chazal are definitely, are, are generally opposed to taking nadarim, there is this idea of uh, uh, in the in Yerodeah, Reish Gimel Sifei, it says, Be'es Tzara Mutter Lindor, that if a person takes a vow in a time of Tzara, so that's something which is, that's an acceptable circumstance to take a vow. And then there are sources about what exactly that means. Is it a netter because I want to be saved from my Tzara? Or is it a netter which is taken after the Tzara that I'll make sure never to put myself into that again? And this is something which the, the post can discuss with this, uh, this Ramah over there in Reish Chavchesif Memhei, what exactly the parameters of, of taking a vow in response to a tsara happens to be. But that's the, uh, that, that is the end of the general, all the topics. Not that we saw all of them in depth, but those are the topics which, uh, which we identified for, uh, for the story for this year. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 